Peter, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Hello. Tonight's scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 115, verses 1 through 11. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their hope and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. We all, if you haven't had the chance to meet her yet, that's my wife, Beck, uh, Becca. So glad that she's back here with us tonight. And so baby Will, he just turned six weeks old. Thomas just turned four years old. And so it was just such a blessing to be able to sit there in between my sons as Beck came up and read the passage for us. So y'all, it's so good to see you here tonight. Uh, I was able to meet a lot of you folks before. If you're brand new to Oxana, we're so honored that you would choose to be able to worship with us here on this Tuesday night with everything else that's going on. If you're just joining us, uh, we are in the middle of a series called Cow Tipping, Tearing Down Idols. It's kind of a play on the imagery and the story that happened in the Old Testament. When God's people were liberated out of the land of Egypt, they were out in the wilderness. Moses was up on the mountain, taking a little bit longer than they would have liked. He comes back down, and God's people have melted all of their gold down into the image of a golden calf, and they were worshiping this idol. And as they were going through, like the Lord, he was just, after delivering them, through an ocean, the Red Sea, splitting it, and them turning around and attributing that to someone else. The Lord, it was kind of a picture of the idolatry that would come again and again and again. And so we've been going through, we've been talking about the idols that are prevalent in the lives of college students, young adults, but it spans even further out from that. So last week we looked at the idol of money. We looked at the idol of money. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things. Money, you don't have to have money to idolize money. And you can build your life around the pursuit of money, finding your life in the the security in your life, in the money that you have, how much you've accumulated and what your worth is. Tonight's is going to be touching a little bit closer to home. It'll be a lot more self-evident of this particular idol. But, you know, before we get in there, it's one thing is, I I don't know if y'all are like me, but, you know, going through, it's like Facebook knows the kinds of videos that I like to watch. You're scrolling through and it's like, gosh, I don't want to watch this because of the algorithm. And I know that they think that I'm going to like this, but like, I like it. You know, when everybody's making something or it's like, for me, it's like when stuff is going through a factory. Y'all, I don't know if you guys have seen those videos of when they're going through and it's like how something is made. And I'm just like, I want to know how that's made. 
And you know, I've never thought about how that's made before. And you're going down the assembly line and you know, the machine that makes the machine, like used to when I was watching the Food Network, it was unwrapped. When you're going through, you're figuring out how like Tootsie Rolls are made or how the, your Butterfingers are made or different things like that. Going through and seeing through the factories because we like to know how things are made. It's crazy that like raw materials will come into the factory and that through processes, through innovations, through hard work, through engineering, that out comes this other product. It, it, it really is fascinating to me. And it's even more fascinating to me that throughout the course of church history, this idea of the factory uh, has been used, has been borrowed, has been taken to show that the factory isn't just something out there, but the factory is something that's in here. It was the Protestant reformer John Calvin that actually said, the heart of men and women, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That our hearts are perpetual, night and day, open 24-7 factories for these idols, for these things that we can worship. Now, a lot of times we think idols are just statues, something out there that people in other religions, that they bow down to, and I've seen that. But an idol isn't just something out there, but an idol is something in here. We've seen in previous weeks that an idol is actually can be a good thing that God gives to us. It's a gift that God gives to us that we can turn around and we can worship the gift rather than the giver. We can turn around and worship the creation rather than the creator. And as we're going through that, it's not just bad things, but it's good things that God gives us. And we, it's like the raw materials for these gifts, these good things that God puts here in this earth, that it comes through and our hearts outspits an idol. But you know, it's not just John Calvin that came up with this, not just John Calvin that has gone through with this. There's been a lot of people throughout the course of church, even modern day thinkers. There's a guy named Miroslav Volf. He's a professor at Yale University. And this is what he had to say, borrowing this language. We forget and unwittingly reduce God's ways to our ways and God's thoughts to our thoughts. Our hearts become factories of idols in which we fashion and refashion God to fit our needs and our desires. Or James K.A. Smith, he's a philosopher up at Calvin College. You know who the quote is taken from. He says, as we've seen, it's not a question of whether you worship, but what you worship. And our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Or Rosaria Butterfield, who's someone that I've done a lot of learning from here in recent years. She's got an incredible story if you want to be able to go and read her memoir. But this is what she says, former English professor at Syracuse. One very difficult aspect about sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life, plain and simple. My heart is an idle factory, and my mind an excuse-making factory, especially when it comes to dealing with the kind of sin that clobbers me the most, indwelling sin, the unrelenting, ever-present kind that never takes a Sabbath, that never takes a day off, that when it comes to the raw materials, the gifts that God has given to us, and we, with the efficiency, innovation, and design of our own making, we manufacture, we produce these idols that we worship in place of God himself. And as we go through these idols, an idol is anything that you love, trust, and obey more than God. Anything that you look to for your significance, for your identity, for your worth, Anything that you give your life to and that you serve more than the one who gave his life for you. This is an idol. And these idols, they tell us lies. They really try to make these promises, but they're empty promises. And so we have to combat these things with the truth. And you see, the thing that we're going to be able to see, and we were able to see in Psalm 115, as Becca read for us, 
You see, we serve these idols other than God because in serving them, we are really serving ourselves. In serving idols, we are really serving ourselves. Let's look at Psalm 115 again as we bring it back up on the screen. That Psalm 115, this is what the psalmist says. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. The psalmist is broadcasting here at the very beginning. Like There are some who would want to give themselves glory. But he's saying at the very beginning, resolve, not to us, not to me, but to your name, God, get glory. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. You know, the prophets would pick up on later this, and they would say, you would take from the same block of wood an idol and your firewood. Like, j- just to be able to show a little bit of the ludicrous nature of going through, and you're saying, you are going to fall down and worship this, and from the same cut, you're over here warming yourself by the fire. But these, they're silver and gold. But do you notice what the psalmist says? That these idols, they have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. You see, these idols begin to resemble the one who made them. It was so much so that in the early church, there was a church father that said, if cows could make idols, their gods would look like cows. And he was trying to highlight the fact that we who make idols often make them to look like us because we are worshiping ourselves in the process. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. Verse 7, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They resemble us but they are not like us. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You see, we make idols after our image and then we end up worshiping these particular idols. We become like the idols, lifeless, a mere shell. And you see, this is the death spiral of idolatry. There is a death spiral of idolatry because you see, you mold what you love and then you become what you behold. Let me break that in for you. You make, you mold, you fashion, you create that which you love. And in this instance, Psalm 115, they are creating images of themselves. And then you actually become what you behold. They that make them become like them. So you are actually making, we make idols to look like us. We make them to look like us. And then we worship that image. And in worshiping that image, we become like it. And then it's just a constant death spiral down further and further until you collapse in on yourself in dead end worship. And as we come here, This is the dueling worship. Are you going to worship the one and true and living God only, a holy God, or are we going to worship ourselves? Where is your hope going to be found? Is your hope going to be found within yourself, or is your hope going to be found within the Lord? And you see, one of the main areas where we see this is in the idol that we're going to be looking at tonight, the idols that we're going to be looking at tonight. And it's in the idols of relationships and sex. That here, this is one of the main arenas where we see this in relationships and in sex. But you see, there are a lot of different kinds of relationships that we can find ourselves in, right? That between a parent and a child. Between a brother and a sister. That between friends. 
That between a mentor and a mentee. That between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. That between a husband and wife. There are all these different relationships. And you see, the thing about it is, all of the, none of these relationships are exempt from becoming an idol. That your family can become an idol. Where you are right now, as the child to your parents, you can idolize your family. One day, you might even be tempted, you know, work with me just about 10, 15 years down the road maybe, that you might be tempted to idolize your children and to live out vicariously through your kids. This is something I have to fight the impulse of. Being able to go, I'm going to live myself through you and I'm going to cultivate you, I'm going to create you in my own image and in doing so, I'm actually worshiping myself. But you see, I see it a lot of times with friendships. Not everybody will be in a romantic relationship, but most everybody will be in a friendship. And it's very easy for us, like, because we need to see that friendships are a gift, right? That's what we're saying. Like, these things, they're not nefarious. They're not intrinsically evil, but like, friendships are a gift. This is what Proverbs 29 says. Oil and perfume makes the heart glad, and sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Scripture would say elsewhere that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Y'all, it is a blessed thing. To be valued and heard and cared for and understood. To know that someone else gets us, right? C.S. Lewis, that 20th century theologian, Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, all this. He, in reflecting on friendship, he says, The beginning of friendship often comes when, two people say, well, when one person says something that they like or enjoy and the other says, Oh, me too. That a lot of the, that mutual admiration, that mutual enjoyment for something. That, there is something about being understood, being on the same wavelength, resonating with another person that is so wonderful and that is God-given. Friendships are good gifts that God gives to us, but like all gifts, we can use them in ways that are not good, healthy, or appropriate. We can actually make friendships a God. And remember, it's a God is anything that you love, trust, or obey more than the Lord. And so... What does it look like to love friendship? Loving the other person or being, just being known as someone who is friends with that person. Like, I'm so wrapped up in this other person or I like being attached to this other person. You are putting your trust in that friendship that you find your worth, your identity, your significance wrapped up in this other person. Maybe because they have a higher status than you or maybe because you feel like they're a project of yours. But we can sometimes obey the, the relationships too, the friendships that we can... Our, to the point where we're manipulated or we manipulate ourselves or we shut everyone else out, that we become jealous, that we want to wall off, that this is just us two together in this friendship because you see there are lies that the idol of friendships can tell us. This is the first lie. I, I can fix them. That maybe you are wanting to be seen as their savior or you're thinking they need me. No one else can get them like I do. No one else would be able to do the same things for them. Or flip it, I need them. No one else will get me like they do. That I can only be this source of fulfillment and significance for the other person and vice versa. That this is taking a good thing and making it a God and that is a bad thing. Friendships, it's not a mute. We idolize friendships. Really, when we claw all the way down to the bottom, we idolize friendships because we love ourselves. And we are seeking to serve and worship ourselves. But a lot of times we actually see it in romantic relationships. And this is something that's big, college age, young adulthood. 
A lot of people are thinking through relationships. And you think about it, relationships are a gift. And this past spring, when we were going through and we were talking in our relationship series, you know, it's really interesting. There's no dating category in the Bible. And there's just a little bit of uh, mention of engagement and betrothal, but really romantic relationships are almost exclusively talked about in terms of marriage in the scriptures. And we look at passages like Proverbs 18.22 that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Like that romantic relationships, that marriage, that we get onto the picture of the New Testament. Book of Ephesians, it's a picture of the love between Christ and the church. That, yes, marriage is a good thing. Paul, talking in first, he who desires a wife desires a good thing. But, you see, the thing about it is that we can take this good thing and we can make it a God. We can love, we can trust, and we can obey these romantic relationships more than we do the Lord. You can love the other person, get so wrapped up in the person, or maybe you just love love. You love belonging, that you are just obsessed with being in a relationship, having that status, being able to change it on your social media platforms, that you want to revere and worship the other person. You know, I mean, we say it sometimes jokingly, like, well, he worships the ground that she walks on. But sometimes it actually happens. Sometimes we actually get so wrapped up in this other person, and we see it in the media that we consume, right? Now, listen, I'm not here to hate on T-Swift, y'all. I'm not. I'm not going to be, don't, go, don't leave here and be like, Blake said I can't listen to Taylor Swift anymore. Like, we tried to go to her reputation tour, and we had tickets, and I did, that was Becca's Christmas present, y'all, and I did everything to like work my way up the Ticketmaster line so that I didn't have to pay ridiculous amounts of money, and then we ended up having a conflict that had to come up at the last minute. We had to sell the tickets, but hey, we bought a couch, and so it's in our living room right now. I call it our Taylor Swift couch, but we're going through, like we're listening to this album, and we're going through, and we're listening to this, and I was talking with Becca about this particular sermon, and she said, you know the first thing that came out of my mind? was that song king of my heart and not the one by john mark and sarah mcmillan you know let the king of my heart be the mountain where i run the fountain i drink from oh he is my song no the other king of my heart the one that says and all at once you are the one i have been waiting for king of my heart body and soul oh whoa right like and all at once you're all i want i'll never let you go king of my heart Body and soul, oh, whoa, oh. Do you, but do you listen to that? Like, it's one of those things. Like, as soon as you said that, I started singing in my head. I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's got a groove. That's got to go. But going through, and you start to think, and you really slow down, and you listen to the words. And all the like, that you are the one that I've been waiting for, that I've been banking on, that I've been anticipating, that I've been looking for. And I'm going, and I'm taking this to level 10, that you are the, actually not just another person, not just someone I enjoy spending time around, not somebody that I could see this going somewhere with, but know that you are the king of my heart, body, and soul. And that if that is the attitude that you are having, if that is the expectation that you are going to be placing on someone else, just be expected to be let, expect to be let down. That no one else is going to be able to stand in the place that God alone can stand. No one else is going to be able to bear the weight of being the king of your heart, body, and soul. Everyone will let you down. And I don't say that like in a, like just, okay, we'll go in the corner and cry kind of thing. Like you can't trust anybody, that nobody is there for you. But no, it's like when we look for ultimate significance, when we look for ultimate love, when we look for belonging in someone else, what happens when that person dies? What happens when that person leaves? What happens when that person starts to become more interested in someone else? What happens when that person further down the road starts chasing someone younger, someone more beautiful, someone more funny? 
What happens when that love is subject to change? But we who trust and worship in God, trust and worship the one who has said that I will never leave you and forsake you. That these idols, they make a lot of promises, but they can't keep the promises, and so they actually end up becoming lies. But it's in the song that we sing. He's the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Because you see, these lies, the romantic relationships, when we seek to idolize them, this is the, these are the lies that we tell ourselves. That if I can just be married, oh, then I'll be happy. That we think marriage is the ultimate goal. That you think having a ring on your finger by second semester senior year, that is the goal. That you think, not just maybe if I be married, I'll be happy, but maybe further down the line, if I, maybe you're already married someday and then you start to have the thought creep in, maybe if I can be married to that person, then I'll be happy. Or maybe you start to think marriage will fix my lust and my addictions. And talking a lot of time with young people, thinking like, oh yes, well once I'm at the point where I'm able to be in a marriage, committed relationship, able to have sex all the time, that I'm going to just, it's going to fix my porn problem. It's going to fix my lust problem and looking and undressing others with my eyes. It's going to fix all of that. Or marriage will make me the best version of myself. Marriage will help me to become fully human, that I'm missing out, that I'm right now a single second class citizen. Well, that's, that's a lie. Because the most fully human person who have ever lived was the Son of God, was Jesus Christ himself, and he was never married. He never had sex. But you see, that's the lie that culture tries to sell us. That's the lie that the enemy tries to dangle in front of us, is that, that in order to be a fully self-actualized human being, that you have to be sexually active, that you have to explore and to put forward this identity. But that is a lie. We idolize these romantic relationships. And in doing so, we are actually idolizing and serving and worshiping ourselves. And do you notice the thing about all these lies? All of the I, me, and my language. That they're all focused on me. And you see, the separate but related idol to this in the I, me, mine is the idol of sex. It's the idol of sex. You see... And the thing about it is, and a lot of times, people in the church have not done a good job of talking about this. If they talk about it at all, right? That a lot of times, we, we, are, we are being discipled by someone or something. Whether you realize it or not. You, in the same way that you are all worshiping someone or something. It's just a matter of who and from where you're getting it. But we need to be able to go to God's Word and be able to see that sex is a gift from God. Like, God is not anti-sex. But it's a gift and it's to be enjoyed within the proper boundaries. We see in Genesis chapter 2, the very beginning, verses 24 and 25. After he's created man and woman, Adam and Eve. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. And when we see this, what we see, the, the two shall become one flesh. That You see, a lot of times we think that sex is just purely physical. There's attach and detach. It can be casual. It, this hookup culture, it's just, yeah, just simple. It's coming to, uh, like, almost like two pieces of Velcro being stuck together and then pulled apart. Stuck together, pulled apart. Attach, detach. Attach, detach. But no, biblically speaking, there is so much more. And maybe if you have gone through that and you've been able to experience that something, the empty, hollow feeling of the casual view of sex. Why? 
because it is so much more than a physical act. That it is a spiritual act, that there is a bonding that takes place. That there is a one fleshing that takes place when man and woman come together. And there is an intimacy that is enjoyed there. That they were both naked, they were not ashamed. That there is intimacy between the man and the woman. Or we see in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? That we see this right here, that sex isn't just merely meant to be for procreative purposes. But there is actually an element of pleasure that God has been able to gift to people that were able to enjoy this. How? Within the covenant confines of marriage. Between a man and a woman. That he is the one that has designed it. He is the one who has gifted it to people. But you see, we can make it a God. We can love and trust and obey and look to sex for all the fulfillment. We can go looking for love in all the wrong places. You see... When we start to idolize sex, it, it consumes our thoughts. That we think, we start to trust in it, like if I'm sexually active, then and only then am I worth something. Or we begin to obey it. You will give your time, your money, your impulses, your desires, your standards to it. All of it will become unhindered in your pursuit of this. But you see, the thing about it is, there are certain lies that are very sneaky when it comes to being able to talk about sex. These are the lies that we believe about sex. That sex, it's all that matters. Sex is everything. It, it just consumes our thoughts. It consumes our desires. It consumes our attention. It consumes the empty spaces in our minds. Or on the flip side, eh, sex doesn't matter at all. It's flippant. It's, it's casual. We can treat it as inconsequential. Oh, it's just physical. Oh, it, attach and detach, attach and detach. But no, there is a one flesh union that is happening right here. It, well, it doesn't affect anyone else. It, the consequences end with me. I don't know why the church cares so much about sex. Well, the lie, if it feels right, go for it. You know, and chasing the fulfillment, like, oh, these are the desires I have, and I must act on these particular desires. Or lastly, sex can give you everything that you want. Pleasure, intimacy, belonging, excitement. If I have this, I have everything else. That we can actually bow down and serve this. And in doing so, we end up serving ourselves. But you see, the thing about it is, if we follow this, if we believe these lies, if we chase after and look for our ultimate belonging and worth and value in sex, it will bring so much pain and heartache. And it will have lasting consequences for us and for those around us. Because you see, sex has so much potential for good and for ill. It can be used by the Lord or it can be abused and used to abuse others in significant ways. You see, uh, it, I've heard people, a guy named Ray Ortland at one point, pastor up in Nashville, and others have picked up on the metaphor at times throughout their writing and preaching, but that a lot of times sex is like fire, right? Fire is a, can be a good thing. 
It can be a useful tool. You can put it in a campfire. It can keep you alive. <laughs> if you're out in the woods, you can use it to cook food. Like You can use it to warm your home. Like There are all these things that you can be able to use fire for. You can put fire in the fireplace. And as long as fire is in the fireplace, then it's a good thing. But it's the second that the fire comes out of the fireplace, the place that it was designed to be, then what happens? Then it can consume, it can destroy, it can leave a trail of wreckage in everything that it touches. That we have to be able to see that We did not design this. We did not gift this to ourselves. We did not come up with this. But God gave this gift to us. And we, as such, we must use the gift in the way that it was designed and intended for one man and one woman in the context of covenant commitment for a lifetime. But when we use it casually, when we think that we can just go around and we can treat it as flippant or inconsequential, then we will see that we're not just... We're not using it. We we are serving ourselves and we are using other people to fulfill our own needs. Treating other people as objects in pursuit of our own self. We idolize romantic relationships. We idolize sex so that we can love ourselves. These are the idols that get cropped up over and over and over again. So what do we do? What do we do with these idols? Well, it's the same thing we've talked about every other week. The first thing that you have to do is you just have to, be, you have to identify the idol. You have to ID the idol. And that's what we're doing. We're calling it out. As I've been talking with people last week after the talk on money, people realize, not realizing how much that maybe it had creeped up in there because you're thinking about this. You don't have to have money to idolize money. In the same way, you don't have to be sexually active to be idolizing sex. But there are ways that we can make this the idol. That, that is the goal. That is the finish line. That if I cross over there, that's going to fix all my problems. That's going to make me feel like I'm worth something. That's going to bring me so much joy and so much pleasure and so much fulfillment here in this life that I just need to get to that point. Well, the thing about it is, it's never going to be enough. And no other person is going to be able to fulfill your deepest longings. There was a guy in early church history. His name was St. Augustine. Right? And so St. Augustine, he wrote what a lot of people consider to be the first autobiography, Confessions, if y'all have had to read that for different classes. And as he's going through, he's detailing out his struggles with lust, his struggle with sex, sexual immorality. And he's going through, but in that book, he talks about his restless heart going through and trying to find fulfillment in all of these other places, in all of these other people, in all of these other activities. And this is what he said. Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That you can go looking for all these other places and you can experience a lot of hurt and a lot of heartache and a lot of pain in a lot of different ways. Or you can come and you can worship the one who will bring rest to your searching heart. You can go to the one who will be able to fulfill you in ways that no one else will be able to even begin to do. That you can come to the Lord and that you can follow him. So you have to identify these idols, but then you have to tear it down. You have to tear it down. And that's either in its presence or its prominence in your life. In its presence in your life or its prominence in your life. There are some idols that we simply cannot remove completely, right? Some of us can idolize school. Some of us can idolize money. Well, you probably don't need to drop out of school tomorrow and you probably don't need to just go back to the trade and barter system, right? Like you, 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 but you can remove the prominence of the idol in your life. And in the same way, there are sometimes with friendships. 
There might be some friendships in here tonight that you guys know are codependent and unhealthy and that you have bridged from being able to care for the other person into idolizing them. And you need to figure out, do I need to remove the presence of that friendship from my life or the prominence of it in my life? What steps do I need to take? In the same way with romantic relationships. I'm not up here trying to break up anybody. But you might be in the middle of a relationship that you know that is not honoring to the Lord. And you know that you are unequally yoked. You know that your lives are going in two different directions. And you need to figure out, okay, well, how do I change the presence of that idol in my life or the prominence of it in my life? And in the same way, with sex, the way we can idolize sex. This is one, if you're not married, you need to remove the presence of it from your life. Because, see, the thing about it is, not just in the sense of biblical sexual immorality, but it, it clouds your decision-making process in the dating evaluation time. That's what the purpose of dating is. It's to evaluate, is this the type of person that I'm going to be able to see myself marrying someday? And if you go through and you look at biologically what is happening, every time that you are engaging sexually with another person, the chemicals, the hormones that are released in that particular moment, that we actually see it is a bonding agent that is happening. It is the same chemicals that are released when a mother is breastfeeding a baby and the bonding, the connection that is taking place there. And so that's how some people that are sexually active before marriage, they can, it clouds the decision-making process. And then all of a sudden they end up married to someone someday that they're like, how did we get together? Where the newness, the novelty, the excitement, the thrill of the sexual encounters is worn off. And then you're like, who is this? That they're for us. It clouds the decision. So there are some of you, you, you need to stop having sex to be able to honor the Lord, to follow Him more faithfully, but also to help you in the evaluation process in dating. So there are some relationships that you need to draw very clear lines, or there are some that you just need to step out of completely. And I'm not going to be able, from the platform, be able to tell each and every one of you that are in a relationship or that would desire to be in a relationship what you need to be able to do, but get those around you who can help you because you see, it's like Rosaria Butterfield said at the very beginning. My sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life, plain and simple. I can make excuses in my mind. I can erect idols in my heart, especially when it comes to dealing with the kind of sin that clobbers me the most, and dwelling sin. We're not, when you have those people in your life that you can trust, who can speak into your life, who can call you to the carpet, who not put you in your place, cut you down, elevate themselves, but who can come and can meet you and can challenge you and can love you and edify you, build you up. Who are those people? What can you ask them? How can, what feedback loops do you have? How can they speak into your life? You need to be able to identify the idol. You need to tear it down in either its presence or its prominence. And then you need to replace it. Because that's the thing about it is if you just tear down this idol and you don't put anything back in its place, it's just going to grow back. You're going to figure out another way with another person to be able to put it up in its place. You see, we need to appreciate these friendships, romantic relationships, sex. We need to appreciate these things for what they are and in the way that they are to be appreciated. But we don't need to make them do what they were never designed to do in the first place. Because you see, friendship, it's a tremendous blessing from the Lord, but it is a dreadful God. Romantic relationships and marriage, it is such a gift from God, but it is a draining God in and of itself. And sex was designed by God and can be used for good and for His glory, but if pursued in and of itself, it is a demanding God and nothing is ever enough. 
you will always need and crave more. Do not love and trust and obey these things, but turn from that and love and trust and obey God. Because you see, this is Jesus, He is the only one, the only one who can give you that union, that belonging that you so desire. He is the only one who can give you the intimacy that you truly long for. He is the only one who can be a friend for you, who will never leave you and never forsake you, even when the times are getting tough. He is the one who can restore our hearts where we no longer manufacture idols, but where we can actually turn and magnify His name. That He can turn us away from ourselves and just going down into the death spiral of more and more of ourselves, where we collapse on ourselves like a dying star and where we can go up and we can see him and we can reflect his glory back to him and in this world around us and he is the one who can make you new he is the one who can give you a new heart he is the one who can make you a new creation you are not damaged goods no one is beyond the saving touch of God he can heal any brokenness He can build up anyone who's been torn down. He can bring back to himself. You see, I mean, it is true, like what I said earlier, that we mold what we love and we become what we behold. But you see, it doesn't have to be idols. You can love the Lord and have your life molded according to his. That you can walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. Why? Because of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf. That he died the death that you and I deserved to die. And he he conquered the grave and now offers that life to us. That the abundance of his life can spill over, fill us up, and bring us back to him. That you can... You don't have to look at these idols and become like them, but you can actually, Scripture will say, you can look to the Lord and you can become like Him. That's what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that you can, beholding the glory of the Lord, be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. You become what you behold. Is it going to be an idol and where you spiral down into more of yourself, the worst version of yourself? Or are you going to look to the Lord and be transformed, what Scripture says, from one degree of glory to the next? And we look forward to that day. We're in 1 John chapter 3. This is what he says. We will see him, that is Jesus, and we will be like him. For we will see him as he truly is. That it's in that seeing that we become. What are we going to look to? Are we going to look to these idols which are really images of ourself? Are we going to look to the one who made us, who created us, who has redeemed us, and who has now given us good gifts to enjoy in their proper place, and according to his design. We no longer have to serve idols. You don't have to bear the burden of worshiping yourself. You can worship the Lord, and you can find that his yoke is easy. You can find that his burden is light, that he is gentle, and that he is lowly, and that he seeks to care for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for saving us from ourselves. That we don't have to figure this out. That we don't have to do this on our own. 
God, that we are not left to our own devices. God, I pray that you would not give us over to our desires apart from you, but God, that you would make our desire you. God, fill us with this desire. And as you fill us with it more and more, would it push the lesser ones out of the way? Would we desire your glory? Would we desire you? And would we be able to appreciate your gifts in the way that you've designed? Would we not seek to do more with them or less with them than what you have said for us in your word? God, would it be true that all of our hope is found? All of our worth is found. All of our significance, all of our pleasure is found in the hands of Christ my King. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.